Welcome to Lights at the End of the Tunnel, a place where we shine a light on, rant, complain, and try to find solutions about the MGA. After all, we are all in these tin cans together. Welcome back to Lights at the End of the Tunnel. Glad to have you back. Episode 37. Recorded February 22nd, 2020. On this episode, I speak with Jessica Murray. Jessica Murray is a Ph.D. candidate at the Graduate Center at CUNY. For those outside of New York, that is the City University of New York. She is also an organizer with Rise and Resist Elevator Action Group. This is a very important episode as we discuss accessibility issues and the MTA, what they are and how they impact all of us. Train stations are currently 20% accessible. There are nearly 1 million New Yorkers that are currently shut out of the right of transit. This is shameful and appalling. On Tuesday, February 18th, Jessica Murray and I met, and on this episode, we discuss her work regarding accessibility and transit, and how the lack of accessibility impacts the disabled community. After my interview with Jessica, I will speak on what we learned from Jessica and my thoughts on what we had learned from her. Following my summary, I will have contact information for Jessica Murray, Rise and Resist, and myself. Please listen to what Jessica has to say. Her work is very eye-opening. Please enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica Murray. Jessica Murray is a PhD candidate at the Graduate Center of CUNY. She's also an organizer with Rise and Resist Elevator Action Group. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. As we all know, the MTA is willingly and woefully out of compliance with the AD Act of 1990. A lot of your work focuses on how transit options impacts the ability to live and work for those with disabilities. Would you agree for th that those of us who are able-bodied, we genuinely don't understand the challenges that are faced with those with mobility or cognitive disabilities, especially in this city? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I think most people don't have an awareness unless they experience a temporary disability or unless they have a loved one who has a disability that makes it tough for them to get around the city. And I myself was not even fully aware of the challenges that people with disabilities uh, face. Um, when I started school, um, I did a master's degree here at the Graduate Center uh, before I started my PhD program. And I was kind of generally interested in transportation and how it affects our well-being um, as the link between home and work mm -hmm. and how our experiences kind of spill over into our home life and our work life. So if we have a bad commute, uh, we're maybe going to be grumpy in the morning uh, when we get to work or if we have a bad commute on the way home, we may take that out on our, our loved ones at home. Um, so that was kind of where the interest started. But um, when I was able to talk to Simi Linton, who's um, a disability rights advocate uh, here in New York City, she's an author, um, she writes about disability studies and identity. Um, and so she, at the time when I spoke with her, she was a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the Taxi and Limousine Commission, okay. um, which had very few accessible taxis. Um, and so she kind of described her difficulty getting around the city, and it really started to 
bring my awareness up. Um, and I started kind of looking at, you know, thinking about how often do I see wheelchair users on the subway? I can't even remember the last time I saw a wheelchair you, user you on the subway. Salsha brought that up in our podcast. It's like, if, if there's no visibility, you assume, assume that there's no problem because right. you, you don't see them. But then why don't you see them? Right. And then you start to really think about it and investigate, and then you realize that it's less than 25% accessible. Right. It's actually 20% accessible, which we'll get back to the fuzzy math and Gail Brewer's wonderful expose on that. But it's shameful. It is. And yeah. it's just like people are like, well, the system's old. It's like, yeah, well, Boston predates us by like seven years, and they're about 90% accessible at this point. So I don't want to hear that. Right. That it's old. The yeah. age is not an excuse. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of my, my first uh, publications was um, a, a research paper on paratransit because um, I w- had been interviewing wheelchair users about their transportation experiences. and in addition to the frustrations people have with um, trying to navigate the subway, the very little accessibility that they have, how they have to go out of their way to find accessible stations, how the elevators are broken much of the time, how the buses are too slow to really be a good option to to get around the city. Uh, A lot of people end up relying on paratransit and... um, Which isn't reliable. It's not reliable. There's so many issues and the basically the level of frustration I heard from people um, describing their paratransit experiences is really what cemented my interest in uh, transportation issues in New York City and understanding how uh, the transportation environment is basically effect- not affecting not only well-being but also motivation. So if, if your options are the subway, which is like really difficult to use, the bus, which is super slow and not super reliable, um, or paratransit, which is, you know, it's has so many issues that and it's not reliable even for people who have subscription service where it's they're going to the same exact place every day and they still can't really get reliable service um that really impacts people's motivation to do a lot of stuff not even work not even just working but um you know socializing doing anything that the rest of us kind of take for granted that we could just get on the subway and go where we want to this is, this is very true. It has an emotional impact on you as long as well as a financial impact. Talk to about talk to us about your our mobility research project. Sure. So it's um, I have a few different studies that are part of this research project, um, but the idea was to better understand uh, the challenges that people with disabilities encounter in transportation, uh, but also to see if people without disabilities are experiencing the same challenges. Um, And so um, there was a survey that I conducted last year, and you read the report um, from that. And I currently have a survey going until the end of the month, um, which is kind of just like a revision of the first survey. So I'm kind of trying to uh, hone these measures to get at um, measuring basic psychological needs in transportation. So what are the factors in transportation that basically um, make people people feel like they don't have autonomy, relatedness to other people, or competence when they're using transportation? So, you know, there's certain barriers that um, are well-documented for people with disabilities that affect all of these things. Um, but interestingly, from the first survey, there were, there were some issues that were almost identical for people with and without disabilities. So I think um, looking at 
the whole transportation environment through the lens of, um, of a disability um, perspective kind of highlights what areas we should focus on for the general population as well. So in your publication, Understanding Transportation Challenges for People with Disabilities Returning to Work was a real eye-opener for me. There was a lot of very solid information in there about how the lack of transportation and finances and all of those things impact someone returning to work. Walk us through those challenges. Sure. Um, well, I, I think, um, you know, transportation is, is a well-documented barrier to work. And so there is um, a Kessler Foundation, which is based in New Jersey, that does an annual survey of um, employees with disabilities. And transportation issues in this national survey are in the top three uh, factors that um, impact people's ability to go back to work if they're on Social Security Disability Income or SSI. Um, and so a lot of people don't really know how to get help um, with this problem. And um, not that many people even seek help or are able to resolve it. So um, you know, this is a, a grant funded research project that I'm working on this survey. And um, really I just proposed to look a little bit more closely at transportation issues because yeah, it can be the affordability, it can be the accessibility of modes. Um, a lot of people with disabilities can't drive themselves, um, and so they rely on public transportation. But when public transportation is not accessible to them, they have very few options. Um, and many fall back into this paratransit uh, program, which is kind of the only option for a lot of people. And then when you combine um, people that are on Social Security benefits um, are often living you know, at or below the poverty level. Um, so they're not going to be able to afford to live in places where there are, you know, a lot of options for transportation where they are. Um, so they may live in an accessible transit desert in New York City, or they may live in a suburban area with very few um, transportation choices. Um, so it's, it's kind of just trying to look at all the things together and see which one is kind of the most important among, among those things. Um, but I, another thing that I found interesting is that... Um, you know, especially for wheelchair users, the, you know, we, we think about public transportation and transportation in general, it kind of ends at the front door. So it's like, if you can get there, um, you know, transportation kind of covers the sidewalk and yeah. then like, but within the building, getting into the building, those were significant challenges too. So, um, you know, even though I'm kind of interested in the transportation piece, it's like, there is that kind of independent mobility within the buildings um, and to get into the buildings and accommodations that people need and are not getting. And there there are some people who just simply, I don't want to say give up, but they opt out. Like they, they realize that the challenges are too big for them, whether it's finance or just the emotional costs of trying to get there and get back, or they just don't have it. So they end up on SSI or SSDI living below the poverty level right. in situations that aren't optimal for their health and well-being. Right. Well, I would, I would add, too, that the, you know, the number one and number two reasons why people have difficulty getting to work or finding a job when they're on benefits are um, discrimination by potential employers and a lack of uh, education to get the, the job that they want. 
And I think that the, both of those things are very connected to transportation, and we kind of tend to overlook that, um, you know, a, an employer who, ha, you know, if you make it to the interview stage and you show up in a wheelchair and, you know, this employer is meeting you for the first time, they may think, oh, are you going to be able to get to work on time every day? Where do you live? You're going to get questions that someone without a disability is not going to get in a job interview. So that's already connected to transportation. And then education, higher ed is, um, you know, CUNY system has a lot of buildings that are not fully accessible. Um, and, you know, being able to get to, to the schools and then into the schools and be able to fully participate is a problem for a lot of CUNY students especially. However, there's also work and the social life gives us a sense of purpose. There are psychological costs, not only financial costs, with not being able to get to work. But those financial costs of not being able to get to work dovetail into those emotional costs. They make decisions from where we live, to what we eat, to who we see. It's all connected. Do you think that those who made deliberate decisions not to have elevators in the train stations understand that fact? Because it is a deliberate choice. Right. Well, I think... Um... I think the way we understand disability today is very different than it was even 30 years ago when the ADA was being negotiated and written. Um, and you can re read the New York Times archives um, about elevators and the subway. And there was a, a mindset at the time that, you know, this, this is a very small percent of the population. Um, and they're not really working anyway. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, forget the fact that, it, that people had been fighting for access to transportation for, you know, decades before this. The, you know, the ADA wasn't like when people all of a sudden said, oh, people with disabilities would like access to transportation. No, you know, this activism had been going on for decades before this. And in New York, um, especially, you know, there were already laws on the books uh, well before the ADA about architectural barriers. And, um, you know, the MTA leadership at the time was just very stubborn about like, no, it'll be cheaper in the long run for us to just drive people where they need to go. Because, you know, if we think about, you know, there there's really 493 stations, depending on how you count, or mm -hmm. 443. Um, so, you know, they're, they're just saying like, oh, this, there's no way we can do this whole system. We can't make it all accessible. It'll cost billions of dollars. Um, so, you know, we'll do the, the more fiscally responsible thing and drive people from point A to point B. Well, fast forward to today, and we know that paratransit is costing, you know, over half a billion dollars a year. So, um, you know, it's a cost-benefit um, calculation that they didn't really fully um, do at the time. So, and I think, you know, it's like the, there's the saying of, of, you know, separate is never equal. And, um, you know, I've heard many disability rights advocates um, say that phrase before. And I think um, it's a mistake to have a paratransit service that only services people with disabilities, because what you end up with is segregation. So you have people that are kind of out of sight and out of mind. Right. Um, uh, whether you think that's like intentional or not, it really doesn't matter. Um, they should be able to be, you know, using public transit like the rest of us if they want to. Um, that's true. It's very true. And um, even though it's a, it's a fallback, it's supposed to be a safety net for people who absolutely can't use public transportation. And there's always going to be 
a subset of the population that needs that additional support. But, um, you know, there are many tens of thousands of New Yorkers who should qualify for paratransit but don't even bother to sign up because of the way it's, it's well, run. Well, qualifying for it is a difficult process because yes. they're, all their like, centers for testing you are in far-flung parts of you know, the boroughs. So you have to travel to go out there and then they test your mobility skills and all that stuff. It's kind, I read about it and it's kind of humiliating. Mm-hmm. It's just, you, I understand the doctor's note, that I can get behind, but there's all this testing that goes on and you have to get there and you have to prove that you're worthy of this, of this paratransit. It's just like, well, it's kind of humiliating. Yeah, and then you have and to- unnecessarily re- so. Right, and then for people who are permanently disabled and they, you know, many people have had their disabilities since birth are asked to recertify that they're disabled every five years. So they have to relive this experience um, just to stay active. And a lot of people just, you know, it's like, in addition to the other problems that they experience when they get that recertification letter, they may just say like, forget it, I'm not gonna even recertify. And that happens to a lot of people. So what do they do when they choose not to recertify for access or stress around? I mean, a lot of times, um, you know, people just end up being kind of immobile. So they may stay in their borough, they may stay in their neighborhood, they may just not travel very much. Um, they may only take, you know, public transit if on the very few occasions that they need it, or they may just say like, you know, I only need to go visit this doctor a few times a year, I'm just gonna pay for a taxi. Um, I don't know, I mean, it's like, but I think, you know, from just from anecdotal evidence from talking to people who have been in the community for a long time and know how other people are thinking, it's like a lot of them just don't go anywhere. And that's that's not what we want. No. They have a right to life and a right to traverse the city and see friends and family and go yeah. see a show if they want to. Right. But it But the city sometimes makes it really difficult and almost impossible to do for no good reason. Um... Well, let's talk about the elevators. Um, You wrote another paper, Issues Impacting Work-Life Quality for People with Mobility Limitations Living in New York City. And one of the things that stuck out to me in this paper was, as part of an agreement with the Federal Transit Administration in 1992, the MTA agreed to make 100 key stations accessible by 2020, but are under no obligation to make them completely accessible. Is that why we have those elevators just going to the mezzanine, you know, and not to the platform? Well, so the this is kind of a tricky gray area that I, you know, I still don't really fully understand what's going on. And there have been recent, um, um, you know, lawsuits where they have, have stated that um, the 100 key station agreement was not meant to be a ceiling. It was meant to be a baseline um, so that, you know, initially the, the whole paratransit idea was um, that the MTA would, you know, instead of, you know, going bankrupt, putting in, you know, a thousand elevators throughout the system, that they would uh, make 100 key stations accessible and then they would have paratransit vans to drive people to the accessible stations um, and presumably pick them up. on the other end. um, I think this system never really saw any um, fruition because in the 90s, trying to coordinate all of that was kind of a nightmare. Um, And so, and in addition, 
you know, the DOT is um, responsible for sidewalk quality. So it's like, and then the elevators may or may not be working. So trying to schedule a paratransit feeder trip to a subway station, and then you get there and the elevator's out of service, like that kind of throws your whole day off if you're um, a paratransit driver and you have a, a list of passengers you're supposed to pick up and drop off for the day. Um, so they essentially turned the feeder service into only serving bus routes, which isn't super useful for a lot of people. Um, but then the, the Hunter Key Station Agreement, um, New York and Philadelphia both got an exception under under the ADA that, um, you know, that they have like separate agreements that they've already worked out. And I think the both cities were, the agreements were due to a lawsuit. Um, so New York had started with, you know, a lawsuit settlement um, in the 80s where they agreed to make 54 stations um, accessible and then it went up to 67 and then it went up to 100. That became codified in state law. Um, but now recently, you know, it's like 2020 is now, it's their deadline is in a few months. Um, we'll see if they actually meet the deadline for the remaining 100 key stations. Um, but there was a recent um, lawsuit about one subway station where the judge ruled that, um, you know, this 100 key station agreement doesn't mean that you can ignore the rest of the ADA. It was basically like, here's the short-term agreement um, and it didn't really allude to the future. But in the ADA, there are two different um, requirements. One is that they, if they, whenever they modify um, the entrance to a station, that they have to make it wheelchair accessible. And that's one clause of the, this, you know, uh, part of the ADA. And then the second is that, um, you know, the, the cost of the renovation, um, if they have to be able to prove that it's, um, it's an excessive burden, um, and you know, that it would, that if it exceeds 20% of their budget, then they can kind of plead an exception. Is that why it costs so much to install elevators in this town? Well, that's, like I don't, you know, tens of millions of dollars to install one, according to them. This is something that I still can't fully understand why they are so expensive because, I mean, we are literally four times as expensive as London. And I could understand some inflation based on procurement processes. I looked at some numbers. Chicago managed to do it, and four elevators cost what one elevator costs in New York. Exactly. So we're spending about four times as much as any other major city with the same issues of age of the system, um, London's much further underground than New York. Um, Chicago has is mostly above ground, but um, so we are. Still have to get there. And a lot of our subway stations are above ground too. Smith and Ninth was under renovation for two years. The tallest in the boroughs, no elevator. Right, and so previously people had been suing every time they would open a station and not make it accessible. You know, if, if you could find a plaintiff and um, the attorneys to take the case, people would sue on a case-by-case on a case basis. So this most recent ruling, um, I think it was a station in the Bronx, um, the judge said, okay, well, those two clauses are separate. So it's like the, the cost issue is separate from the you're renovating the entrance. And that's really, it doesn't say like, you know, those two things aren't connected. So regardless of what the cost is, you renovated that entrance and you didn't make it wheelchair accessible and you were supposed to, and that's the bottom line. Um, 
But he also found that they didn't even try to find out how much it would cost. So they didn't even do the due diligence of saying, you know, we tested it out or we, you know, hired an architect to do a study and we figured out that the cost would exceed 20% of the budget and that's why we didn't do it. They didn't even bother to, to look and, and find out how much it would cost. So now the current lawsuit that I think you talked to Sasha maybe a little bit about this. Um, he's a plaintiff in um, one of several lawsuits right now. And so they're looking at... I appreciate at, what he's doing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, a lot of... I can only imagine what it's like going up against the MTA. It's very and frustrating. They're, and they're $1,400 an hour lawyers. Yeah, and now they're, you know, it's like the discovery phase is happening. And so they're trying to get documents from the MTA. And the MTA lawyers are, are asking the plaintiffs to come up with, like, proof that they're, that they need elevators, which is just ridiculous. Um, so they're supposed to find... That's so insulting. That's so insulting and condescending. That's awful. And it, it's totally, like... Everybody, elevators are for everybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't have to have a disability. You could just, you know, have a, a sprained ankle for a minute and you need, you, know, you don't want to take the stairs or you have a kid in the stroller or you're old. We're all going to get old. Yeah. And, and, this... we're, and mobility will become an issue for all of us. So everybody needs the elevator, lawyer, person. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is why the Americans with Disabilities Act was written in the first place because it's like, hey, here's a new recognition that like we're, you know, disability affects all of us at some point in our lives. It affects people we love. And we're not gonna be able to change our society overnight, but if we put these guidelines in place and we say, you know, every time you renovate a station entrance, make it wheelchair accessible, it makes it less of a burden over time. Um, and the reason the MTA is supposed to follow this federal laws, you know, they get federal funding like about a third of their budget now comes from federal funding. And historically, they've gotten even more of their budget from federal funding. So um, it's really unfair for them to say like, oh, it's an unfunded mandate when they um, are getting money from the federal government. They're not, I mean, it's, you know, they can make requests for, for different um, accessibility projects, um, but, you know, they would have to figure out how much it's going to cost first and actually um, do the estimates. So it's, it's good that Andy Byford was here to actually do this system-wide study. Um, that study is was completed last year, but the MTA is refusing to release it. And this should be public information, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. I mean, we're all, we should all just start sending foils. The, but they'll ignore it. <laughs> they always ignore it. What, we, they never give any information, because the transparency that they keep talking about is very opaque. Yeah. Um, a great quote you had in this, also in this paper was, for anyone with mobility disabilities who may dream of living and working in New York or simply visiting, the unfortunate truth is that the city will be far more hostile and unforgiving to them than it is to those without limited mobility. I mean, if you're not going to make the city accessible, just as, as a moral standpoint so everybody can appreciate it, think of the money that they're, that they're losing just by tourists. Oh, sure. You, yeah. If they looked at it from that perspective, people coming into the city, whether it's working or tourists, they're losing a lot of money just that way. So if you're going to like totally ignore the moral aspect of being you know, hospitable to everybody, right. you should look at the financial aspect and just do the right thing because it's hitting your pocket. Yeah. Well, I don't... It may cost you money, but you'll make money back in the long run. Yeah, that could be part of their cost-benefit analysis to see how many 
how many tourists are taking taxis to the city um, and how many of those could be converted to, you know, AirTran and, and subway fares. Um, I mean, I've met a lot of tourists who don't even try to use the subway because they feel like it's too intimidating. And oh, yeah, I think... I've heard that too. I, I travel abroad and I've heard that from people who came to visit the city and they have, you know, some uh, a cousin or something went years ago with a and had like a wheelchair and they couldn't do anything. Right. And this was like 10 years ago. And, I w and it's like you talk to people like this and it's like you've made the city impossible for a lot of people to come visit. Right. For reasons only known to you. Right. Because clearly you're not thinking about the long game here. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the elevators, um, I would argue, in that case. Because it's like, yeah, elevators are great for tourists who have, you know, luggage and that they'd rather not spend money on a cab and re would rather spend it on stuff that tourists do, right. you know, an another nice dinner out or a show or something. Um, they, But instead, they're spending that money on a taxi to and from the airport. But the... Additionally, there's this kind of, you know, cognitive complexity of the subway. It is like the most complex system in the world um, in terms of like the number of possible transfers. Uh, we have express and local tracks, like all of this stuff is very complex. But, um, you know, the, the wayfinding design that we have is not really designed um, for people who have any kind of cognitive or information challenges. And this applies to people with cognitive disabilities, but also people who don't speak English as their first language. Sure. Um, and everything Thank is you. in English. Um, but if you look at um, wayfinding design, like in international airports, for instance, you see a lot more use of icons. You see, um, you know, symbols. You see, you know, you go to other cities that have complex um, subway systems, like Tokyo. They have they put a number for all the exits. And so you know, you know, when you're getting instructions, you can look for exit number three and you know, okay, now I'm going the right direction. Um, we don't, we've never really tried anything like that. You know, we're kind of stuck with this wayfinding system that has been around for 40 years. Uh, we have a map that's 40 years old and it's not the most intuitive to use. It has a lot of extra information that people probably don't actually need just to be able to navigate the subway. True, that's very true. Um, and I think all of those things need to be considered because, um, and it would help, you know, there are a lot of paratransit users that are, it's, they're just get too confused by the subway. Um, and so we're not really serving them either if they, if, if they can only kind of learn how to, to go from like one place to like from home to one place and back is essentially what um, most travel training programs offer for people with that are on the autism spectrum or have any other kind of developmental disability. Um, so that's pretty limiting, you know, yeah. but if we had a system that actually um, made sense intuitively, relied less on, on written text and more on icons and, um, you know, there's technology is a great bridge to help people with their navigation skills um true. but it's very true but it's still not really all there and i think that this is something that mta has never really thought about what innovation no just doing like, better well or just thinking about <laughs> like how do what if we designed from the point of view of people with disabilities like what did they need um and you know this is where the kind of need for competence comes in because I, you know, I have multiple sclerosis, but my day-to-day -day abilities are pretty normal. Um, 
I still get turned around in some of our subway stations, and I still get kind of lost occasionally. Um, even though I've lived here for 11 years, there's some stations where I don't know what it is, but this, the wayfinding is just confusing. And I go up the wrong staircase and realize I did it again, you know? And um, that's frustrating. Yeah. And so people get frustrated when they feel like, uh, like I can't understand this, I get, when they get feel like they're lost. Um, that like, affects their like feelings. Like 42nd Street, sure. Barclay Center. Yeah. West 4th Street. Right. And so they've tried this at... Um, Herald Square. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bunch are, are not the U- most intuitive. Union Square. Yeah, Union Square is confusing. You can go up one staircase thinking you're transferring to a train, and then you have to go all the way back around the station to get to the one that you wanted to go to. J Street Metro Tech is a lot like that, too. Yeah. And that one, they you know, they're testing out some kind of like signage on the floor, yeah. like wayfinding I strips. It's there. I yeah. see it. But, I, you know, it's like, I'm not sure how much um, feedback they're getting. You know, it's like one station. It's hard to know, will this work as a system for people when it's rolled out to the rest of the system? It's been safe to say that the subways are 22% accessible for many years. However, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer did some math on her own to find out that the MTA's frequently fuzzy math really turns out to be only 20% of the subways are accessible. What did this information do to the disability advocacy world and how did this information impact your advocacy? Um, Well, for me, I saw this um, report by Gail Brewer's office and um, at the time, you know, part one of my studies, I'm working on kind of a resource training guide uh, for people with disabilities who experience a lot of challenges uh, with transportation. And so I was trying to put together some tools and information. I started working on a Google map of all the accessible stations in the subway um, to, you know, so that people could open it up on their phone and see, oh, here are the nearby subways um, that I can access. And when I started doing that, um, I realized that a lot of the stations um, that were listed more than once had one elevator from the street to the mezzanine. And so these were transfer stations that were being technically counted twice, but there's one connection point to get to that station. Um, And so as I started kind of looking at this, I'm like, wait a minute, they're kind of cheating a little bit um, because, yeah, like, is this how other cities count their stations? And I realized, like, no, Chicago... No other systems in the U.S. count their stations this way. They count a transfer station as one station. Mm -hmm. And um, I also realized that, you know, the MTA had kind of been talking out of both sides of their mouth a little bit about this. No. Saying like, oh, we're... (laughs) I don't believe that. Shocking. Um, So they were saying... That can't be true, Jessica. You know... Speak uh, ill of the MTA like that. Right. So they would say stuff like, well, some stations are really complicated, so they're going to be very expensive, they're going to need a lot of elevators. Um, But they're also counting some of them multiple times. So they would say stuff like, oh, Broadway Junction, that one's going to be really complicated, blah, blah, blah. But that's three stations is the way that they count it. Um, And then, you know, when I was looking back at these regulations and these key station agreements... um, I realized that they were counting stations in Staten Island on their 100 key station list, but they don't actually count the Staten Island subway or the Staten Island Railroad stations in their overall count. 472 is their official number. That's all of the stations in the four boroughs, and that includes multiple 
counts for, you know, Times Square is actually five stations, Grand Central is three stations, Herald Square is two stations. So it's like, you know, they're kind of padding the, the total number um, and then they're also counting their accessible um, stations multiple times under that system, even though they may share like one connection point. Um, and so, um, but the, I just thought it was really funny that they're counting three stations in, in Staten Island that are not even part of, you know, this other list of stations. And I don't even know how those got on this hundred key station list when they're, it's like clearly, you know, they're, they're kind of undercounting um, the, that whole <laughs> borough is like not even included. And so when I started looking more at like, okay, what if we only count the transfer stations once and we include Staten Island, how many stations are actually accessible today? And it was more like 90 out of a total of 443, I believe, or 445. I don't have to look at my exact numbers, but so, um, yeah, and then, you know, with these um, next 70 stations that they're doing, it's actually, we'll end up with about 59 stations if you take out all those duplicate stations. Well, as long as those 59 elevators show up, which leads me to this question. The capital plan made news for being the first capital plan to actually really make a genuine push for more elevators to be installed. Given the MTA's inability to complete projects on time and way over budget, do you believe that these elevators will arrive on time, on budget, and be functional within I mean, this capital plan? <laughs> the, I mean, the reality is the capital plan is all kind of a bit of a mirage because the funding is primarily coming from congestion pricing. Which they're, um, if you read today in Politico, they're thinking, they're thinking about putting that on hold for a couple of years while they do a study so it's just like all of this, all of these plans sort of rest on this one thing that was finally passed after many, many years of fighting, but now they've got to study it. Right. And it's I, just like, it's just, it's like once you think you're going to get somewhere, <laughs> it all just goes away. I mean, and they can't, the, a study only gets you so far. The best thing, in my opinion, that they could do is roll it out, implement it, and then study what happens. Yeah. Because there's, they can only speculate what will happen, um, you know, without actually getting real data as to how people respond to certain charges. And you know, it's like there's also this catch twenty two of like if if the the charges are are too high, then people stop driving and they rely more on public transit, and then you don't raise the revenue you need in order to keep it going. Um, and if it's too low, it's not really gonna work and it also doesn't you know, create the revenue. I think in other places, the revenue from congestion pricing is kind of a bonus. They don't, that's not the main goal is to raise revenue, like in places like Stockholm and you know, other cities that have, have successfully implemented congestion pricing. It's just a bonus of like, okay, our goal was to reduce congestion and then we also raise money that we're putting back into public transit, you know? So it's like, I think the priorities are a little bit backwards where they're saying, okay, we're, we're funding half of this capital program with not, not the actual congestion pricing tolls, but like financing and like taking on more debt based on this like recurring revenue source, which we're not really sure how much exactly it's going to be. 
Um, we hope it's this much. We, we They really have no idea inst until they start implementing and trying it out. So I think, um, I really hope that whatever study that they are talking about um, doesn't actually happen because like we don't, really don't have time to waste and we don't have the, the funding sources coming from other places that are going to be able to make up that significant part of the budget. It's all a mess. It's such a mess. Yeah. <laughs> They're so terrible with money and projects and things that cost so much money that doesn't cost so much everywhere else. Right. Andy Byford's last day is this Friday, February 21st. What are your thoughts on his resignation and how his tenure impacted how the MTA deals with accessibility issues? Um, I was pretty sad to, when I heard that Andy Byford was leaving. Um, he, I mean, he's, you know, I think he's just like a unique person that will probably be really hard to um, replace. And I think his impact on accessibility issues at the MTA has been uh, profound and will last for a while um, because I think that he... That is if they keep his ideas. That, yeah. They're already kind of erasing him. They've already gotten rid of his announcements. Right. And some other things that he did. So I, I'm concerned that they won't piggyback off of the goodwill that he created for the MTA through his own transparency. Right. And the implementation of small things that he did. Right. That's my concern. That will all go away. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm holding out hope that that won't completely happen. I think um, there is some progress. Like they are kind of fast tracking the first 23 subway stations that are are in the plans to get elevators. So they're trying to to get those uh, projects started, uh, which I think is a positive sign that like they're they're actually trying to to get these. 70 slash 59 stations done in the next five years. Um, I think, you know, he he said, you know, the cat's out of the bag about accessibility. He, he said that to me once. Um, so, he's, you know, he's like, you know, now the public wants it. It's out there. Right. Um, they've, you know, said publicly that they're going to do this. And for them to walk it back is going to be extremely challenging, um, considering how upset people were over the enhanced station initiative that saw 19 stations renovated without any elevators. Um, I mean, this they're kind of doing like a miniature version of this right now on the seven line, mm -hmm. um, where they're renovating another eight or nine stations that don't get elevators. When Bay Ridge Ave opened in my neighborhood, there was a protest about it. It's like, you spent all this money, but no elevator. But right. there's an elevator going in at 86th Street. And I think that costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $18 million yeah. for an, an elevator. Yeah. And it's going to open up sometime this year, and they started construction on it in 2018. Yeah. I don't, it takes it, a it, long time. It's they, two years, tens of millions of dollars, and you're just kind of like, why? They're, they're creating bespoke elevators at every station. They haven't figured out how to standardize anything. They're basically building these from scratch. In the <laughs> just like, you know, a, a, an elevator that other cities use that we could just use, but, you know, we're too good for that. Is that what they're saying? Yeah, I, I mean, think, I mean, it's like... Does everything the, have to be custom? Uh, Can't we just have something off the rack? I mean, come on. I mean, if the if they were smart, I I feel like the you know, we we kind of end up with these like lemon elevators because um, 
basically all the huge elevator companies, the ones that are industry leaders um, like Otis or Thyssenkrupp, um, their business model is based on their maintenance contracts. And so they sell the elevator equipment at cost to whatever building or transit agency or mall or whoever is their client. Um, and then they make all their money from maintaining the elevator over a certain number of years. And um, the MTA didn't want to do that. They wanted to have control over their own maintenance. But they're terrible at maintenance. Exactly. They do, they do reactive maintenance. They don't exactly. Do, they don't do proactive. <laughs> I'm going to check on this right now. I'm going to inspect this elevator on this week, on this day, to make sure everything's running smoothly so people don't get trapped in it. They're not doing that. They're just waiting for it to break. And then, oh, it broke. And there are people in it. Now we got to call the fire department. Now it's a thing. And now it's going to be closed down for like a few days to a week, maybe two weeks. Yeah. Just be proactive. Let Otis, you know, Otis will charge you money. Good. That means you're maintaining it. Good. And then you can hold them to, you exactly. know, the, you can a yell standard. At them. It's a, you, can, you can just go <laughs> talk to Otis. I know. That's their problem. Instead of everyone yelling at you. You just saw, you, we just solved a problem. It's not your problem. It's Otis's problem. But Otis would never let that happen. Right. But and so what we end up with then is like elevator companies who we've probably never heard of that are manufacturing stuff according to MTA specs. And so they're charging a lot more money than they would because there's no maintenance contract involved. Um, and when you think about it, there's, you know, there's the MTA has, I don't know, they have less than a thousand elevator and escalators throughout the system. There's tens of thousands of machines like this throughout the city. Um, so, you know, I'm not really sure how many maintenance, elevator and escalator maintenance workers they have, but it seems just from an efficiency standpoint that it would make more sense to, to be outsourcing that. They like to outsource everything else. I don't understand why they want to keep the elevator maintenance in-house. And, you know, for a long time they've tried to standardize Elevator equipment and parts, which is never going to happen. Um, elevators are kind of like a, an evolving technology. So there's like, you know, new elevators that do all kinds of stuff. They have monitoring software built in. So the minute something goes wrong, there's a system that is um, supposed to be alerted. We have a system called LiftNet in the elevators, but there's still all these kind of manual processes um, that have to happen in order for the status to be updated to, oh yeah, it's actually out of service, you know, so none of this stuff is automated. And I know a lot of people who kind of religiously, that's part of their routine. If they're going to use the subway, they check the status before they go and they could still find a broken elevator in the time that, you know, since they left wherever they were leaving to when they get to the subway station, because we don't actually have real time elevator status monitoring right now. It's, yeah, it's, it's, everything's so hard. <laughs> With Andy leaving, he brought on Alex Alagudin. Do you think they will allow him to stay? I hope so. I mean, you know, I, the, I think the reorganization plan calls for a, a system-wide accessibility advisor for the entire MTA. So this means that it would be Alex's responsibilities of New York City Transit, which is already a huge job in itself because it's the subways, buses, and paratransit. Mm -hmm. um, but then add Metro North and Long Island Railroad to that as well. Um, so, I mean, this is just like 
even New York City transit accessibility issues, as we talked about, are it's kind of just like a Pandora's box. Once you start looking at, at issues, more and more issues uncover themselves. And um, it's, you know, his, he's built a team of about six people and, and they are working their butts off right now. I can tell you that much. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hope that- Do they if, have any support within the system? Well, I think Andy was their main champion, um, and he's the whole reason that they're there. Um, and so, you know, I, I just hope that um, whatever happens in this reorganization plan, that they realize the importance of this um, and they try to preserve it. And yeah, it would be great if if um, accessibility was considered at all these different levels, um, but it really goes into like every every decision that is being made, there has to be somebody there to, to think about accessibility issues for people with disabilities. What are your thoughts on the mayor finally doing something positive for transit by nominating Victor Kalisi to the board? Yeah. And uh, hopefully he'll get approved. Yes, hopefully he'll get approved. Um, he nominated two advocates. Um, the other is um, Lorraine, what's her last name? Um, Cortez Vasquez, Lorraine Cortez Vasquez, and she's the commissioner for the Department of Aging. So I think it's great to have two representatives that can, you know, kind of stick up for the needs of people with disabilities and older people. And um, I really hope that they're as active uh, behind the scenes as um, Veronica Vanterpool was. Um, she was a, a really great advocate for people with disabilities. Um, and she did a lot of work in the background to try to make paratransit work better. She um, was on a task force for paratransit. Um, and so I think, you know, it's like, you know, being a board member is not really, um, it's not really like uh, something that is a political favor necessarily because the expectation is that you attend, you know, a monthly board meeting and also at least one or two subcommittee meetings. Um, there's hundreds of pages of materials to read every month. And if you're going to be um, a voting member of the board, you have a lot of homework to do and it's unpaid. Um, and so, Finding people that are willing to do this and own the responsibility and um, be there to represent, you know, people with disabilities and the aging community, I think it's a it's a huge challenge to find someone who's um, who's willing to do that. And I hope that they um, are. I hope they answer to the community and stay involved in the community and and do the work behind the scenes that's necessary. What can we do for a disabled bus rider to make their commutes better? The the general riding public, you mean, or? Well, for, for all of us. For all of us, But, but yeah. also, you know, our disabled users. Um, I know that sometimes the lifts can sometimes get be broken. Yeah. And then there's traffic. Right. We need to clear out the bus lanes. Yeah. Bill de Blasio, clean out the bus lanes. Right, yeah. Or build a bus as slow as they call them on transit Twitter. I mean, it's like the the fact that they're 100% accessible is great, but if they can't get moving, what good is it? Yeah, that's that's one big problem. I think another problem is that um, because 
we have so many older people now that are having to rely on the bus because the subway is too hard for them. And we have, you know, each bus is pretty much equipped with two spots for wheelchair users. And those also double as the um, accessible seating area for people with other disabilities. So that space is becoming a little bit more in demand. And if you're a wheelchair user that's waiting for a bus during rush hour and, you know, the bus is too full for you to get on, you have to wait for the next bus to come. And this is why a lot of people get discouraged and, and quit doing it or, or try to find other ways to cope with it. Um, so I think, you know, for the, the general public, I would say, like, you know, just stay out of that seating area completely and leave it for people with disabilities um, because it's, you know, I think an additional challenge that people may not be aware of is that, um, you know, people with disabilities have to experience like a lot of random abuse from other people. And so I've, and I've witnessed this many times because I take the bus a lot too, where there's a, someone with a wheelchair is boarding the bus and, uh, you know, it's, you know, the bus driver who may or may not be like, <laughs> you know, sometimes the bus driver's like very, just pretty much like do the job like you need to move there's someone with a wheelchair that's boarding occasionally they're just like you know they act annoyed that they have to like get out of their seat and do all this other stuff um and you know they have to hear complaints from the people that they're asking to move and then you know you hear passengers oh now i'm going to be late uh oh now great you know whatever and it's like they're blaming the the person in the wheelchair um, and so that kind of constant, like if you experience that every single day, that's a lot. Can you, yeah, it's it's a lot to deal with, and that's kind of on top of just all the other unknowns that are going to happen. Like, are there going to be? Is there going to be a spot for my wheelchair on the bus, or am I am I going to have to wait for the next bus, which could be twenty minutes away if it's on schedule? You know, there's there's just so much other stuff going on. So I would say for other passengers, like, don't be a jerk. Um, <laughs> People with disabilities have lives too. They have jobs too. They have, they have places they need to be, and they didn't design our stupid bus boarding system. You know, there are other cities that do a better job, in my opinion, where the bus driver doesn't have to get out of his chair, and people can autonomously board the bus themselves and secure their own chair uh, without the need for this whole hubbub. Um, well, maybe you know, when we get new buses, they can figure that out too. Well, you know, this this has been a suggestion for a long time, but, you know, I don't know. Their decision-making process is not really um, open to me, so I don't know. <laughs> the Ride Hail program started out as something really positive and cheaper than Accessoride overall. Then they started talking about caps on rides and how much you could spend, thus making something great decidedly less great. They're really good at that. What can we do to continue to make the ride hail program successful and functional while maintaining costs and making sure everyone's happy? And this is a very tricky situation also because um, anytime you improve service for people, they're going to use it more. And so that is basically what they said has happened with the e-hail service. Um, but the, you know, it's kind of been a confusing issue from the beginning because they had this larger e-hail program where, um, I don't know why they called it e-hail, but they 
let certain passengers request taxis instead of the traditional paratransit cars. And it was extremely popular. Their customer complaints were the lowest it had ever been during the time that they had this bigger e-health program. And that pilot had around 25,000 people. Um, and the, the cab rides, as you said, were cheaper. They cost a little bit less than half of what the traditional carrier uh, rides cost and should have been a win-win. Um, but they said, oh, the demand increased and then our, our overall costs went up. Um, and then there was this other separate on-demand e-health pilot program, uh, which has been running for about two years. Um, so you have this group of around 1,200 people who can request a ride anytime they want, and um, it's changed people's lives for the better. Um, I have several friends that are, you know, on this on-demand pilot program, and they're doing whatever they can to preserve it. Um, but you know, it's the the MTA is saying, well, if we if we tried to roll this out the way that it is now, with no limitations. Um, our paratransit budget would basically explode to like you know over a billion dollars a year. But you give that. But you do unlimited rides for the subway. So and why? The, so the, why? So right. why can't they have unlimited rides on the ride hail program? Because they're living their lives like everybody right. else in the city. Yeah, I mean, and you a, don't cap it with everybody else. So why are you going to cap it here? Of course not. And a, you know they can't limit or restrict rides, um, the number of rides people take. And so basically they're, they're saying, you know, essentially the on-demand is just, it's just too easy to use and therefore people are using it more. Um, but they can take unlimited rides on this other more expensive program. They just have to book them a day in advance. And so most people will tell you like, okay, well, there are spontaneous things that I would like to do that I can't do. Maybe I want to go to brunch. My friend calls me up and go, hey, you want to go to brunch? Yeah, and you, and that's and why... It, and it's in a different borough. And that's why people are so upset that this program that they rolled out without any restrictions is now being restricted to 16 rides per month and a $15 subsidy cap per trip. So essentially, they can go as far as $15 will take them, which is not very far in a lot of parts of the city, especially at different times of day when there's a lot of traffic. Um, and so this is, you know, it unfairly punishes people who live, you know, outside in the inaccessible, you know, transit areas where they, paratransit's their only option. And if they were lucky enough to be on this pilot program, um, it's essentially ending for them because if they're regular... They had a, they had a taste of, like, freedom. Real, real freedom yeah. and the ability to do what they wanted to do in a, in a quick way as opposed right. to... Going to, you know, booking it 24 hours in advance, hoping that plans don't change. Right. And living that kind of life. And now they lived a life where you could just call up somebody and go, hey, I need to go here. And you go there. Right. Stuff that we take for granted. Right. A lot of people take for granted. Yeah. And now they want to take that away. It's just, it's just wrong. It, it is wrong. And I think, you know, there's, I think they're making some assumptions about how, travel behaviors will change for everyone else, you know, and I think they're a little bit um, limited in, in that understanding because, well, first of all, the 1,200 people that were selected were kind of, you know, like they were in the know, they were very active, they were, a lot of them were working um, and trying to figure out ways to make paratransit work better for them. 
Um, and so, you know, their argument is like, hey, you know, we may travel this frequently, but maybe not everybody else does. Um, and I think they really don't have a good way to forecast that because you really don't know how people's behavior is going to change once something new becomes available to them. They have limited information from this 1200 person pilot. Um, but I think they're also not understanding, you know, if the rides are cheaper because the the service delivery is, you know, not through these traditional carriers, but through taxis and brokers that cost half, um, they should be able to deliver twice as many trips, you know, and they claim that it's not that simple, but... Um, it is that simple, though. It is that, yeah. It's exactly that simple. It's the... And the making it it's on one demand... Of the few, it's one of the few things in their entire, like, portfolio that's simple. Right. You know? And and they also forget to account for the fact that if people can schedule their trips on demand, they don't have all these other administrative costs associated with rebooking a car when someone's, you know, when, when their trip is, like, completely late and then they have to, like, find someone else to pick them up. Um, you know, the, the way that it, the traditional carrier services currently work is that um, the drivers get a manifest of passengers for the entire day. And so it's almost like, you know, how airport delays happen. You know, if you take a, a flight... It's cascading. Yeah, so by the end of the day, like, your flight could be delayed an hour, and it's because of something that happened in the morning. So the same thing is true for paratransit. And I think they're trying to work on getting their dispatch systems up to date, but it's like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a mess because there's 10 different carrier companies. Um, now they have all the, like, Curb and these other... Um, tech companies that are trying to get in on the, the business. And, um, but yeah, if, if people could schedule their trips when they're ready to leave, they're going to have a lot less problems with, you know, delays that, you know, and picking up people, all this other stuff that, um, are, are costs that they absorb. Um, yeah. And that they, it just like adds to the expense of the service and each trip, you know, they, they are subsidizing each trip, to the tune of $56, you know? So it's like, um, yes, it's, when we compare it to subway users who can ride unlimited, well, subway trips are subsidized to the tune of about a dollar per trip. So this is, it is an expense for them that they, you know, it's not really sustainable the way they have it now. Um, and I think that, you know, they oh, need geez, to- Oh, geez, maybe they should have put in more elevators. Well, yeah, hindsight, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Hindsight's 2020. But even now that, um, you know, they are, making strides on making more um, stations accessible. And, um, you know, there I have heard people complain, and I don't want to, like, throw anyone under the bus that's a paratransit user, um, but I have heard people complain about how they waited and waited for their paratransit trip, and it was over an hour late, and then I gave up and just took the subway. And it's like, well, if you could take the subway to begin with, um, why aren't you doing that? And, you know, they're supposed to be making sure that you're – on a route that's not accessible, but I, I fear that the more that they automate, um, you know, I don't think they actually turn people down. It's like if you're, you know, if you if your specific need is that I need a wheelchair accessible subway stations, otherwise I could get around, um, and you request a ride that's on an accessible route and the elevators are working, do they have a, a way of saying like, no, this is this trip is actually accessible and everything's working so you can take public transit? They, they don't really do that, you know? So it's like, um, 
And I know that that isn't going to be a solution for everybody. And I'm not trying to generalize, but I'm also saying that, like, um, if they're trying to save money, they should look at how they're operating the whole service. And, um, you know, there some people do get offered feeder trips. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's often to bus routes and not the subway. There's the, they need to look at it as a complement to the system and figure out how to make it work, I think, the way that it was intended to work, um, which they've, they've never really tried to do that because it's a lot of work it to figure it out. It is. If you could have Governor Cuomo, Pat Foy, Bill de Blasio, and Andy Byford up until Friday in a room, <laughs> what would you tell them? Um, I think I would just, I would tell them that, you know, for all the talk of innovation um, and trying to modernize the system, you know, the, the mistakes we've made on accessibility are something that they have to own. And we can't really... We, we know that it, it was wrong to say that it would be cheaper to, to drive people from door to door instead of making the system accessible. We know that now. Um, we can't go back to 1992 when they just said like, okay, we'll do this like hand, you know, this very small number of stations um, and then we'll forget about the rest of the system. Um, so they wasted a lot of time and I think if they, they need to own the mistakes of the past um, and then look to the future. And if they really want to innovate, um, they should look at the whole transportation system through the lens of, of disability. Because um, if we make transportation as easy to use as possible for people with any type of disability, then it's going to be exponentially easier for the rest of us, um, for tourists who we're, we know we're losing money out on because it's too hard to use, too intimidating, whatever. Um, and it's going to pay off. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what I would say. In our remaining time, is there anything you'd like to express regarding the state of accessibility and not only in transit, but in the city? Um, I think, you know, there's just so much more work to do. And um, yeah, I think, you know, kind of education is, is something that's missing um, in a lot of this discussion. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the ADA. A lot of people don't really understand how it works. They don't know the history behind it. They don't know. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of misconceptions. Um, and so you know, educating people, making it part of the curriculum in maybe high school and in college so that people understand the importance of it um, is something that we should invest more money in. Okay. Well, I thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so what did we learn from Jessica? We went into a deep dive of what is wrong with accessibility, not only with the MTA, but also New York City. The lack of accessibility is a choice the MTA has made, and it is obvious based on policies and procedures that they have put in place. An example is Court Street in Brooklyn on the R-Line. There is an elevator there, but it doesn't go to the platform. It goes near it. There are a set of stairs to get to the platform. So they can say that they put in an elevator, an artisanal elevator that doesn't get you to the platform. However, they can say that the station has an elevator, so therefore it's considered accessible. The fact that bespoke 
and custom elevators are built per station as opposing to using a trusted elevator manufacturer with a maintenance contract because they don't want to pay for a maintenance contract speaks volumes. The money they are, quote, saving, unquote, via the maintenance contract is probably gone by the time the elevator is built, installed, and running. Plus, regular proactive maintenance that may be more expensive up front would seem more optimal than reactive maintenance, people getting stuck in an elevator, the fire department having to come and save them from the stuck elevator, and now it's on the news showing your inability to maintain your own equipment for the world to see, you would think a maintenance contract would be worth that. Again, choices. Plus the humiliating physical tests that those have to endure to be accepted into the Accessoride program, a program that is perpetually late, cancels at the last minute, and has issues with attitudes from the drivers. I wonder what tests the contractors have to go through in order to be accepted as drivers into the Accessoride program. The eHail program, which was deemed too popular, so they tried to gut it, cap it, and make it decidedly less great. The whole system is hostile to those with disabilities, young parents, and the elderly. New York City falls behind every major city in America when it comes to accessible public transit. Chicago has 100% accessible features on all lines of transportation. Chicago has 146 stations and 100 of them have elevators or ramps, which is 70%. They intend to have all stations accessible in 20 years. Boston stations are about 90% accessible. Boston also predates us by about seven years. So I don't want to hear that New York City stations are old and it's hard to do. Boston has managed to do it. BART in the Bay Area, MARTA in Atlanta, LA Metro, and Washington DC are all 100% accessible. All of these cities can do this. Why can't we? Not only does a lack of accessibility take a physical toll on those simply trying to get from point A to point B, it takes an emotional toll. The stress of not knowing if the elevators are working properly at the start and the end of your journey and possibly having to double back. Not being able to enjoy all the wonderful things the city has to offer because you can't get out of your own neighborhood. The unnecessary straight stress of being late to appointments, your job, or a very important job interview. Or simply not being able to spend time with family and friends. Per the ADA Act, which was first drafted in 1986 and finally passed into law in 1990, if a station is significantly modified, at least 20% of the renovation's cost must be spent on ADA improvements. However, this does not seem to be the case here in New York City. Smith and 9th Street in Brooklyn was closed for two years for renovation and no elevator. Smith and 9th Street is also the tallest station in the boroughs. Bay Ridge Ave, Prospect Ave, and 53rd Street on the R-Line here in Brooklyn were all closed at the same time for renovations and nary an elevator in sight. What we do have is art to look at, fancy classwork, 
and lots of fancy informational screens with conflicting information on them. Historically, the only way the MTA ever agrees to put in an elevator is when they have been sued and forced to. You would think if the system is accessible to everyone, that means everyone wins. You would think in a civil society, everyone winning would be a plus. Hopefully, going forward, elevators and ramps will just be part of the plan when renovating or building new stations. I would like to point out that elevators are for everyone. Our disabled citizens, the elderly, heavily pregnant ladies, those with st strollers, or those who may be temporarily injured. However, it's not enough that you have elevators. You have to maintain them and keep them clean. How hard is it to go in once a day and sanitize an elevator? Given how few of them there actually are, it shouldn't take that long. But then again, the MTA deep cleans the interiors of the subway cars every eight to 10 weeks, which is also unacceptable. Because it's important that we are heard, if you are on social media, here are some people to reach out to and ask, nay, demand. Accessibility for everybody. Sarah Meyer is the Chief Customer Officer for New York City Transit. She can be reached on Twitter at Sarah Meyer NYC. That's S-A-R-A-H-M-E-Y-E-R NYC. She's also asking for suggestions to improve the system, so give her some. Let her know that you would like to see the system to improve overall for everyone. Governor Cuomo's office can be reached on Twitter at NYGovCuomo. Also, his office phone number is 518-474-8390. Let him know that the overall system needs to be accessible for everyone. Mayor Bill de Blasio can be found at, at Bill de Blasio, or you can call 311. Also, on Twitter, at NYC Mayor and at NYC Mayor's Office. So reach out to your elected, your council member, your borough president, your assembly person, your congressperson, your senator. Tell them that the current state of accessibility is shameful and demand that they push for 100% accessible features across all lines of transportation. We cannot be considered the greatest city in the world until we accommodate everyone, so everyone can enjoy what the city has to offer, because everyone matters. That's it, everyone. Thank you for listening, and I hope that Jessica Murray and I gave you something to think about and chew on. Remember, we're all in these tin cans together, and in order for this to work, we all have to participate. Or just be supportive and be in my amen corner. Here are some spots where you can reach out to Jessica and myself. And as the four tops once said, reach out and I'll be there. Thank you to Jessica Murray for meeting with me. Find Jessica Murray and Rise and Resist at www.ourmobility.org to look at her survey projects. OpenCUNY.org slash jmurray backwards slash to see her publications and the work that she does. www.riseandresist.org slash eag. 
find Jessica on Twitter at J-E-K-A-A-N-N-E. Find me, podcastsarah at gmail.com, and Sarah is with an H. This podcast is hosted on anchor.com. On Twitter, at exenezoom, that's E-X-E-N-E-Z-O-O-M, where I employ the hashtag, how's Andy's commute? Hashtag service evasion. Hashtag build the buses slow. Instagram, lights at the end of the tunnel. One big word. Facebook, lights at the end of the tunnel. SoundCloud, lights at the end of the tunnel. Spotify, lights at the end of the tunnel. Stitcher, lights at the end of the tunnel. Google Podcast, lights at the end of the tunnel. Although this app is only available for Android users. Breaker Social Podcasts. Lights at the end of the tunnel. Radiopublic.com. Lights at the end of the tunnel. Pocketcast. Lights at the end of the tunnel. Overcast. Lights at the end of the tunnel. Castbox. Lights at the end of the tunnel. Thanks to Ox on the Roof for the intro music. Follow them on Twitter at OxRoofMusic. Also SoundCloud, Ox on the Roof. And Instagram, Ox on the Roof. So reach out and share. The only way for this to be successful is to work together. We need to shine a light so bright they can't ignore us. Shine brightly, everybody.